Today's On Shuffle episode is brought to you by Belvedere Vodka. Produced in one of the world's longest-running distilleries, Belvedere Vodka is the world's finest all-natural vodka. Crafted by a collective of master distillers, Belvedere Vodka is made with non-GMO Polish rye, pure water, and no additives. Recognized for quality, Belvedere Vodka was named the ISC World Vodka Producer of the Year in 2015, 2016, and 2017. Thus, we're very excited to have Belvedere Vodka as the sponsor of On Shuffle. Enjoy a delicious cocktail with Belvedere Vodka today, and remember to always drink responsibly. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are black again. It's another episode of On Shuffle, and I'm your host, Micah Peters. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Great website. And today we're going to be talking with uh, my colleague, actually boss, The Watch's Chris Ryan. It's going to be a special edition of Recommendations, catching up on all the music you missed while you were listening to Beyonce, Kanye, Drake, etc., etc., etc. Plus, I'm going to be speaking with Justin Charity about Missy Elliott. It's the 21st anniversary of super duper fly do you feel old let's get into it i'm at your house around midnight don't fall asleep Missy Elliott isn't just great, my colleague Justin Charity wrote in 2015. Missy Elliott is timeless. So on the 21st anniversary of Missy's debut album, Super Duper Fly, Justin and I take a look back at where it all started. Charity, how you doing, man? I'm good, I'm good. Can you do me a favor and paint a bit of a picture of the rap landscape that Super Duper Fly parachuted into? I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, so Super Duper Fly was the first rap album. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> what do you mean? Because before it was like disco, and then it was Missy Elliott. So and that was so basically in your version of events, people were b boying in the Bronx on cardboard, you know, and then and you know like messing around with umbrellas and wearing polos and high water jeans, and then out of nowhere, Super Duper Fly happened, and hip hop was born. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm older than you, so I'm I would remember this <laughs> personally. Like Super Duper Fly, Missy Elliott's debut album came at kind of a weird time. Seven months after Tupac was murdered, four months after Biggie was shot, and 14 days after the release of No Way Out, the posthumous sample-driven Biggie album. This was kind of just like a weird left turn, which I guess is what you mean by hip-hop was born after the album came out. <laughs> if I'm being totally serious, Missy Elliott has this this distinction, right? She's both weird. I think a lot of people would use that word when talking about Missy Elliott's music, um, especially around the time it came out. It's odd. It's it's both very slick. To me, it's the hard line in the sand of analog to digital as a transition, right? Of like the sound of hip hop being a lot of big overproduced samples and trash can lid percussion samples to hip hop production being just really smooth and modern. On top of that production, you have Missy. You can hear a lot of Biggie's flows, for instance. You can hear like Missy Elliott flows that are in conversation with Biggie Smalls flows. And I think other elements of how 
Missy Raps are in conversation with a tribe called Quest, certainly in conversation with Busta Rhymes, who's on Super Duper Fly. But she's also doing, I think, a loopier, sort of nursery rhymey, kind of mischievous sort of rapping. And obviously there are mischievous rappers before Missy Elliott, mm-hmm. but she sort of had this very pop knack from the beginning, right? Like a lot of her flows are mischievous, but they're mischievous in this way where you're like, wow, this is just very straightforward. Like this is how you get a hook stuck in somebody's head. Mm-hmm. She cuts very straight to the point with that. Like a lot of Missy Elliott flows are just clearly meant to be earworms. Right. And I, I assume that that is also Probably why Puff tried to sign her before she went with uh, Electra Records and got her own old imprint on the on the label, like because it was after that uh, the 1996 remix of Gina Thompson's "Things That You Do," on which she had that uh, that he 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 haw flow. <laughs> right. So, in terms of like the futuristic sound that came to be, or the alchemy that was performed on Super Duper Fly, a lot of the the writing about the retrospective of it just kind of center around what who was playing off of whom like this was Timberland really the star of of Missy's debut or was it Missy what do you think about that do you have one opinion one way or the other I mean I yeah I think people do reflexively give Timberland a lot of credit from from Missy mm-hmm. uh I think for obvious reasons including um Missy being a female rapper exactly <laughs> Super Duper Fly is one of those instances where you really do have to remind, you remember that like producers and rappers together make music. Yeah. And sure, Missy's career looks totally different if she, I don't know, works with Havoc instead of, or even if she works, <laughs> even if she works with like Puffy and his crew instead of Timbaland. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely an effort, there's definitely a sense of team effort to it. But the thing about Missy is that her personality, like her rap persona, mm-hmm. is it is out of left field, frankly, among rappers, among female rappers, but just among rappers in general, right? She there's something about her that's just she's just enigmatic. Like the way she raps, it both has the most personality in the world and yet is totally inscrutable. And it, it's she's like the Riddler <laughs> in, in a way, right? It's just like, what is she talking about? It sounds so good, but what the hell is she saying? Yeah, I mean, like, even just going the, say, the third verse of, you know, can we just play a little bit of The Rain real quick? It's my When the rain hits my window, I take him <sighs> me some endo. Me and Timberland, we sing a dango. We so tight that you get our styles tangled. Going back to talking about how she's kind of like the Riddler in a way, like you go from think about the third verse on on the rain, which I know that we keep coming back to, but it's such an amazing song. I feel the wind, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, nine, ten. Begin, I sit on hills like Lauren. <laughs> I feel the wind, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, nine, ten. Begin, I sit on hills like Lauren until the rain starts coming down Like, it's just kind of this really soupy, loopy, like, brain drivel. I just want to clarify, like, a lot of rap can seem like that. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot, especially, especially when you put a rapper in a sort of freestyle mode 
I guess rap can seem like that, like a sort of, I like that term, even though it'll seem a little caustic, like brain drivel, mm-hmm. but like no one made it seem so like Missy made that kind of rapping seem like Precise. The mo- right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Not like, oh, I'm, I'm coming off the dome and I'm, I'm really struggling to come up with what is ultimately the third best word I could have said here. <laughs> like Missy makes it seem like, no, no, this is all perfect. This is great. We're keeping it. <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's great. It's the best kind of brain dribble. Yeah. I think the best way that anyone has described it was actually the thing that you wrote in 2015 where you were just like, this sounds like it was made by a yet unidentified species on a planet with an unpronounceable name and a solar system that exists outside of our space-time continuum entirely. Right. Yeah. Oh, God. People are almost hyperbolic, like I was there, about talking about sort of Miss Elliot. She's weird. You know what I mean? and, And I don't. There's definitely a level at which I worry about it sounding condescending Mm -hmm. because, but it's true. It's just at the time when, like, when the rain is first on the radio, it was hard for me to process who Missy Elliott was because that song is so designed to be catchy on a very basic and very immediate level. And yet it is a song, it doesn't advance a persona in the same way that a lot of other rap music is designed to be like, I am the person who made who made this song, by the way, and this is who I am and what I stand for. <laughs> you know, they're like like a lot of Missy Elliott songs. I think eventually she comes into that with songs like "She's a Bitch," but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think the best Missy Elliott songs are, are kind of just like out of left field. And then by the time you're done, you're, the song's over. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> what just happened? Yeah, can, and I the mean, rain like, is like that. Can you explain to me what "Socket to Be" is about exactly? <laughs> Concisely, like in a sentence, could you do that? Well, I, okay, this is <laughs> Missy. Really, is the young thug of her decade. In so much as it's just, it's so easy to listen to her songs and think and have this sort of polarized reaction of either this is really catchy and it doesn't sound like a lot of what other rappers are doing, and certainly other rappers who are working in mainstream radio rotation are doing mm-hmm. inclu- including Lauren like this is just not like Lauren Hill this is not with this is not the Fugees you know what I mean mm-hmm. and the Fugees are a pretty weird group but uh you can either have that reaction <laughs> or you can be you can listen to it and be like this is nonsense and also I'm not gonna really take Missy even, even if I admit that the songs are banging and as a lot of people do sort of crediting Timbaland being like well the beats are hot like, what is she rapping about, though? Yeah. And at her debut, she's working on such a figurative, cartoonish level that I think it takes a second for Missy Elliott to really, like, congeal in hip-hop's imagination as a as a, as a musician, as a capital M musician. Right, because, I mean, like, she darts so ably between, you know, like, singing and rapping and nursery rhymes and all that other stuff. But it's also, like, a really self-assured debut album. That's the thing. It's like the musical perspective of it is so strong. And yet, I just don't think that a lot of people for a long time thought of Missy Elliott in the same way that you would think of like, think about other female rappers. Mm -hmm. Like other female rappers, I think, already suffer other forms of condescension, especially about like authorship of their Mm -hmm. lyrics. There's something about how Foxy Brown performs or how Little Kim performs, right? Mm -hmm. Such that we can all at least agree that what she's, what those people are doing is rapping. And they're like 
rapping. They're like spitting. Whereas Missy Elliott is not spitting in that sense. I tell you what, if you ask somebody around the time, be like, rank all the female rappers, I, I imagine it would be easy for somebody to even forget to think of Missy as a rapper, mm. right? The tradition of like songwriting and like wordplay she's working in, it's innovative, but it's easy to instead regard it as marginal and unserious. Well, unserious, right? it doesn't it, it doesn't feel immediately competitive either. Like there's just right, kind of this, that's the right word, right? It's yeah. a sense in which it's not. She's so smooth. She's almost like too smooth. Mm. Um, yeah, it just seems like she's just making songs with her friends, specifically like best friend with the duo with Aaliyah, right? And that's the great thing about her music, but it's so easy. It, I feel like for a long time it was so easy for people to just sort of write her off because of that. Not write her off. I think everyone knew that those songs were hot. But I mean, in terms of taking her seriously on a critical level, Mm -hmm. I think that that was, for a long time, was maybe a hurdle for Missy Elliott. Yeah, so to go back a little bit to when you said that, like, it took a while for Missy Elliott to congeal in hip-hop's imagination, when would you say that that was? I don't know. I actually don't know that she ever has. Mm -hmm. I think to this day, if you ask people about female rappers, right? And if you ask people about rappers who were dominant for whichever year in hip-hop, even the sort of people who will be like, you know, actually, Jay-Z was not the dominant rapper in most of the years that people think he was. It was actually DMX and Ja Rule. It's like, people will remember DMX's run as, like, this dominant moment, and they'll remember 50 Cent's run as this dominant moment. But, like, if you think back to Missy, people don't, I think to this day, people don't really think of it in the same term. They don't really credit Missy with this sort of preposterous level of success and ubiquity that is, that puts her totally in league with the DMXs and the Ludacrises and the Js in the 50s. She's just not talked about that way to this day. Just kind of like she never really got her roses. You know, yeah. Like Hype Williams already got a MTV VMA Vanguard Award, and Missy Elliott hasn't. Right. So after being diagnosed with uh, Graves' disease in 2008, she gave an interview to the Guardian three years after being diagnosed, talking about how it was difficult for her to even pick up a pen, let alone write a song. Um, but since then, she's been kind of like on a slow motion comeback. Um, releasing songs here and there. Does it really matter if we ever get a new Missy album? It's it's strange because when we say that she's been releasing songs here and there and that there's been rumors here and there, it feels like it's been that way for a <laughs> for for so many years. At least since the halftime show of Super Bowl twenty fifteen. I don't, I actually kind of worry like, okay, imagine if Missy sort of surprise dropped an album on Friday, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm worried that there actually wouldn't be a real appetite for it. Missy was a rapper. Mm-hmm. She was sort of not even having a conversation with pop music. She was sort of like trumping the idea of pop music. Mm-hmm. It seems like the state of pop music itself is in a, in a weird place. It seems like the state of, R&B music, which also a lot of her music is in conversation with, is in a weird place. And it seems like hip-hop is de- is dominant, for sure. But the version of hip-hop that is dominant, one, on a chart level, the stuff that's dominant is dominant through sheer force of, like, millennial fandoms, mm-hmm. right? Whether you're talking about Drake or whether you're talking about Post Malone, it really seems like it 
so much of that stuff is as much about sound as much as it's about you're a millennial artist who cultivates a very uh, broad, but nonetheless, like very generationally specific fandom. Mm-hmm. And it's like she doesn't have the infrastructure. Right. It just kind of sounds strange, like in the current day and age, like the the song that she released last year. Uh, I'm better featuring Lamb, where she it was kind of like this, I guess like cloud rappy Migos flow type joint, where it's just kind of like you know, as long as I've got my friends, I'm fine. I wake up, I wanna dance. So as long as I got my friends, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better. He say I'm hot, I'm so fickle. Pull up on him in my vehicle. He said I'm pretty, I'm pretty. You must be from Brazil, it must be from Mexico. Roll up on him in my Latin book. It characterizes her approach to this latter stage in her career. Because in that same Vinyl Me Please interview from last year, she was talking about having financial security. Like, she doesn't have to put out an album, so she can just sit on music and drop whatever she wants. She's like, if I put it out, and even if everybody don't like it, at least I felt like it was fire that I put out. So you would, on the whole, just be content with Mrs. Every Now and Again and seeing the things like the music video with the exercise ball routine. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to hear a Missy album. Mm -hmm. But I think people need to brace themselves for the fact that we get a Missy album. You have to embrace that as like, look, this is music and I'm going to appreciate this as music and I'm going to totally tamper my expectations for like what the popular commercial reception of this is going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's sometimes hard in the current landscape because I just, I think so much of rap right now is returned to sort of the 50 cent era where it's please like my stuff. No, it's not even that, but it's like artists are really judged harshly against their streaming performance and their sales mm-hmm. performance and things like that in terms of discourse. And I, yeah, it's like, I have this weird defensiveness of like, I don't want to subject Miss Yelly to that. Like, <laughs> I feel like she's been through a lot. I feel like she's made a lot of great music. I feel like she's obviously, like I said, she's not, she's not um, synchronized to the zeitgeist, mm-hmm. but I just, I think more rappers should get to be legacy artists who operate at a high level for their, you know, core fan base, even if they're not Drake levels of of successful in terms of like sales and, and chart performance. Let Missy Elliott be Radiohead. <laughs> yeah, you know? You want to just release her next album on the deep web? Uh, yeah, the like, deep web, like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, another thing that we're kind of overlooking in her legacy, or at least we haven't mentioned it while fawning over the visual aspects of uh, Missy Elliott's career is like the dancing. Listen, hip hop has never really settled the question. I mean, hip hop sort of vacillates between the question of whether rappers are allowed to dance or not. (laughs) 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 Whether whether it is cool for rappers to dance. (laughs) And uh, I think we all know where Missy Elliott stands. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Remember, honey? Remember, remember, Remember having to pretend that it would be possible for Jessica Alba to teach Missy Elliott how to dance? Who the hell is Katrina? Katrina is, is the shit. She just did genuine the video. I don't care if she just showed Michael Jackson how to Harlem shake. I said I want honey, honey Daniels. <laughs> Lord. Charity, I have one final question for you. Probably sure. like the most important question in the entire okay. conversation. Who got the keys to the Jeep? Beep, beep. Who 
got the keys to the Jeep? Oh, my God. <laughs> Listen, I had a Nissan Pathfinder, which is like a Jeep-like truck, but I didn't have a Jeep. I don't have one. I don't, I don't got the keys to Jeep. Beep, beep, though. Uh, Charity, thank you very much for coming through to talk about Super Duper Fly and Missy Elliott, whom we both love. I really appreciate beep, it. Beep, 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 though. up y'all quick break to talk about solo new york it's one of the biggest bag brands in the country they started in 2008 with a commitment to shake up the boring industry and make cool thoughtfully designed bags to keep everyone moving in style they actually sent me uh the peak backpack i used it to take a well to bring my friend's friend's dog to the dog park it's the perfect size for fitting a frisbee or a toy bone or bottles of water because a dog is too bougie to drink out of the fountain you can also use it for other stuff, too, like going to the gym or to work, you know, since that's a thing that people do. Head to solo-my.com slash shuffle to get your own Varsity Peak backpack or any of the other bags they have on offer. There are hundreds of designs and get 25% off your order. Again, that's solo-my.com slash shuffle for 25% off. Now let's get back to the show. So we've just had two full months of Drake, Kanye, Jay-Z, all these kind of huge releases that kind of dominate the conversation. And there hasn't been a lot of time for things to grow on you. And there's a lot of things that you might have missed. But I decided to have the Watchers Chris Ryan on today to talk about other stuff that we might have missed and stuff that's kind of grown on us over the what last few months. What about Beach House, though? <laughs> what about Beach House 7, though? Yeah. Where's what's going on, man? What's up, man? I'm, we're not here to talk about Beach House. We unfortunately are not here to talk about Beach House. <laughs> we don't mess with hipster Enya. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, what else have you been listening to recently? A lot of stuff. Um, I went on a real Bruce Springsteen kick. This is the time of the year where I feel like you need to go to your classics. You mm-hmm. need to go to the canon, and you need to just go to, back into the back catalog of stuff that you really like and and rediscover the stuff that built you. <laughs> so the, this guy, Greg Dooley, who's in a band called the Afghan Wigs, he makes these really incredible playlists um, on Spotify. And he has a a Bruce Springsteen one called An Opera Out on the Turnpike, which is just like these really good mix of hits and deep cuts by Springsteen. A lot of it from the darkness at the edge of town and the river period. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like 70s rock has been something that I've been returning to over and over again. And I know that we're here to talk a little bit about this Neil Young live record that came out a couple of, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, and it kind of just got lost in probably just like, yeah. you know, obviously in the conversation about all the other releases that were happening over the spring and summer. Yeah, it came out at the very end of April, I believe. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, like, it's a live recorded album of Neil Young's show at the Roxy, which is the inaugural show yeah, at the, the Roxy. Yeah, the first show at the Roxy. I, like, I wild. wish. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for waiting for your pleasure and certainly ours, Mr. Neil Young. Listen, my Neil Young knowledge basically extends as far as the fact that he made that one song about Kent State. I know it's embarrassing, but... (laughs) That's um, what I'm here for, man. Yeah, exactly. So, um, after listening to the live album, I did some, like, light Googling Mm -hmm. about it, and it's just kind of like... The story behind it is also insane, because it's an album that the group basically made him and the the Santa Monica Flyers. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, um, sort of have the crazy horse rhythm section, Nils Lofgren, a couple other people, like, uh, you know, in and around L.A. at the time. It was recorded in 73. Mm-hmm. So it's basically Neil Young and his boys, and but there's a much darker narrative around the actual Tonight's the Night record, which didn't come out until 75. Right. Well, they were, they were grieving uh, the loss of a, was it the drummer? Uh, the roadie and the guitar player, yeah. The roadie and the guitar player. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they Both had died been, of ODs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and the the album, as I understand it, is kind of was kind of like group therapy, and yeah, they were writing and recording, and this is the first time they actually performed the songs live for an audience. Please take my advice. What did you feel as a chief difference between the live and the recorded version? Well, they're both played by a bar band. Mm-hmm. It's just that the live version is actually in a bar. Uh, and that changes it, right? So this record, Tonight's the Night, was made not just in the like the twilight of the summer of love, but in the harsh reality of waking up after a multi-day bender of the summer of love. <laughs> so it has this sort of residue of... Uh, the social progressivism that was maybe sweeping through the country at the time, but it has this like really, really harsh come down from it mm-hmm. and all the drug use that was happening at the time. And there's a certain seedy LA-ness to it, uh, which I it's interesting to listen to and to think about it happening at the Roxy because I think as we cruise by in our Mazdas and our and our Hondas, <laughs> like we don't really like see that part as much as as those guys obviously did. And they, you know, they were able to rent like cheap houses up in the hills and just like roll down a hill to go to these bars on the strip. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it, it kind of just shows that for every uh, melancholy dark night of the soul, there's probably like it, it's bookended by you know, like good times, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, like th- to have the hangover, you have to have the night out. And this is just inverted where like the, the record is the hangover and the funeral march and this eulogy for their friends. But then when they actually had to play some of these songs, it's like people were out at the Roxy, like let's have some fun. And these songs with just like a little bit of differences wind up sounding a little bit more upbeat. Yeah, it's weird to have like that that kind of juxtaposition because I mean like in that in that setting everything just feels warmer and it feels like the interpersonal connections are being made and then there's the weird Geffen rap in the middle of it there's whereas, all the banter Maybe some of it hasn't aged particularly well <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um, alright I'm gonna ask you this question mm-hmm. from the original what was your favorite record and do you have a new favorite after listening to the live album that's a great question I think my favorite song on tonight's the night the studio version, the studio album is Albuquerque, mm. uh, which is this kind of perfect song to listen to in the passenger seat on a long drive where uh-huh. you're just kind of like looking out the window and lost in your own thoughts. And this this really, really dreamy country stone song is playing in the background. Look 
I don't know if I would want to drive to it because it's just <laughs> that's how you wind up being like drifting off. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I really, really love Albuquerque on the original. But I think there are just songs like Tonight Tonight, the the title track, and World on a String and Mellow My Mind. Like the ones where like I feel like they jump up a little bit in tempo mm-hmm. and energy on the live record really come to life. Like Tonight's the Night, when you first hear it uh, on the studio version, you're just like, wait, is the is the record starting? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it sounds like guys tuning up and they've just walked into the studio and they're just getting started and you're like, oh, this is it. This is like, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. And on the live version, I think you have like a little bit more energy from the crowd and it feels a little bit more like a natural place to take those songs out for a walk. Uh-huh. But yeah, so like I think some of the more rock songs on Tonight's Night play better live, whereas the the more uh, dirgy ones are like, oh man, they're really playing this song to a bunch of people. This is wild. Like, yeah, I, I was just kind of like, like tired like, eyes is like, let's just sing about a coke deal going wrong, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like the thing that was like the thing that felt wildest to me is the is the like the idea of going to a show to hear songs for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, cause normally like now it's just kind of like, I, I will listen to the album. I'll buy the album. If, if I'll buy the album, you know, like outside of the streaming service, if I really, really love it. And sure. then I will go to the show because I love the songs, but like doing that in reverse is something that's kind of foreign to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was something that, uh, I mean, I, I probably went to like my peak of show going was in the late 90s and early 2000s with like when I was working at this nightclub in Boston that had shows and I probably saw like 200 in one year Uh and I never saw that many again, but I was up in the high double digits for a few years there as far as show going. And, you know, before streaming services and especially before file sharing, the word of mouth that would come out of live shows was invaluable. You yeah. know what I mean? Like the yeah. ability to be like, whether you went and like you would just, I remember I, the first time I saw at the drive-in, mm. um, they were opening for this band, Knapsack, who went on to become a really cool band called The Jealous Sound that I really like. And, uh, but at the drive-in opened. Uh-huh. And it was like, you just walked right out of the, that club and looked like, went to a payphone and called five people you knew. And you were just like, this band is going to be very important. Like, I, you heard it from me. And I know that seems sort of quaint and stupid, but it was like, yeah, that mean, was the kind of evangelism that would come out of live shows. And so there was that, it wasn't just a music discovery tool for the bands themselves. They were like, let's see how people react to this music. Let's try this song out. Oh, it turns out this is like a huge fan favorite. We didn't know it was going to be like that. Now maybe we're going to reorient the record around what we're doing here. It was pretty, it, and you can feel it here. You can feel it. Like Neil Young goes through like four or five different distinct stylistic shifts over the course of like six or seven years uh-huh. and like you can tell it's partially because he had one of the best live bands in the world and they would go out for most of the year let's talk about some more guitar music though okay, okay. what the, you also said that you were into courtney barnett's new album yes which is tell me how you really feel came out in may i believe yeah they say you 
It's a little bit more poker face than sometimes I just sit and think. Her last record came out uh, in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, you know, she's been on the road a lot. She made a record with Kurt Vile. This one, it feels like a little bit of your you, your classic, like, I'm getting used to people knowing who I am record. Mm-hmm. And I think that that naturally makes artists a little bit, I don't know if introverted is the right world because they're, they're still making records and performing, but but it is a kind of, cagey, well, yeah, cagey, introspective. The thing is that like what I get, the sense that I get from this album is just kind of like this overwhelming feeling of like it's okay to not know. Yes, yeah, that that and and then there is also a song called "Crippling Self Doubt" and a ge- <laughs> "Crippling Self Doubt" and a general lack of confidence, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is actually my favorite song on the record. It's, so it's like it, there is a little bit of that too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, what is it about Courtney Martin? Is it just, like, the wry humor of, like, the songwriting? Yeah, her, she's one of my favorite lyricists right mm-hmm. now. She does a lot of wordplay and puns, but I also think that she's incredibly incisive with her observations. And for somebody who's as verbose as she is, she's really economical. I feel like she doesn't waste a lot of space with her words. And yet she has, like, this incredibly, incredibly tuneful songwriting Ability. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a lot of Stephen Malkmus and, and and Pavement, which is a band that was really really important to me. Especially the way the vocals interact with the guitars. Mm-hmm. Um, the guitars, the lead guitar line, often functions as an almost like counter melody to the vocal melody. Like what? What's a specific example of that? You think on the album on this record? Yeah, on this I record. think you could even like City looks pretty. Like it's just uh-huh. it's almost like you can tell that the songwriting process feels like someone just like humming to themselves, mm-hmm. and then they like take that melody and then they sing another melody on top of it and the guitar does one and the vocals do the other. Her stuff contains multitudes. It's funny. It's It can be meandering. It can be like not particularly, they, these can just be like little anecdotes or little like, yeah, like inside jokes that she doesn't ever ex- explain. And I really like that about yeah. her. Yeah, like there's a on, on Nameless Faceless where she talks about like an internet troll <laughs> like where she goes, you said I could eat a bowl of alphabet soup and spit out better words than you. And then like there's a pause and he goes, but you didn't. <laughs> yeah. 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 But then, and like, I, I like the fact that she's so prolific that she gets to just kind of like, I'm going to like write a quick song about internet trolls. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not yeah. this overly precious thing. So she's, she's definitely somebody that I'm really glad that she's been putting out so much music. Mm. In terms of somebody that hasn't been putting out that much music, or it's at least been three years since his last album, I know that we were talking about J-Rock. Yes. um, Who put out an album uh, called Redemption, which is, I mean, like, solid, for for lack of a better word. I ain't gonna hold you. I ain't gonna pressure. Never control you. I ain't gonna front you. Keep it 100. I don't know you. Boss like top dog. Boss my life up crossing over. Why is this album one that kind of like sticks to your ribs? I don't know. I feel like kind of self-conscious about being the dude who's like, I actually like minor TDE rappers. <laughs> uh, but Schoolboy and Absol and J-Rock are definitely three of my favorite current rappers anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, the J-Rock record is great. The J-Rock record, um, it feels like a long time coming. Obviously, this album was made after uh, it's basically his comeback record from in more nearly, than a few ways. Nearly dying on a motor yeah. in a motor- motorcycle crash, which he addresses on the first song on this record. Right. Uh, so for those of you that are listening and don't know, uh, J-Rock was in a near fatal motorcycle crash the same night that he was supposed to be going to the 2016 Grammys with Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. And Crack Pelvis like 
nearly like I mean it was it was really bad. He kind of addresses it on the one of the lead singles for the album, The Bloodiest. The album is just about like overcoming struggle. Yes. In a way that uh nine zero zero five nine wasn't exactly Sure. Yeah. 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 How would you describe like what do you think like J Rock's like signature is? Like in terms of what he does that's different but then say schoolboy or or Kendrick or any of the other T D E people. You can't say that it's exactly storytelling because that's Kendrick. I always wanted to say he's the T D attack dog or whatever. Just because it's, it's just like he's the motivational speaker. He's like the bantam weight. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's just like the dude who jabs you in the chin a hundred times. He was, the, I mean, like he's the first member of TD, yeah. first person sign, and just kind of like the guy that paved the way for Kendrick Lamar to get Pulitzers, you know? But it's just kind of like he's just a quiet production guy, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the guy that gets, you know, double doubles every night. Yeah. yeah, what, yeah. what would you say his thing is? I think he has a uh, an interesting way of rapping about himself that's not overly self-mythologizing. Like, I think he's just very, very, like, almost journalistic about talking about himself. There's some stuff in here that has, like, a little, little like, you know, I mean, the using King's Dead from the Black Panther soundtrack, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously is, involves, like, a sort of larger character-building kind of exercise. Sure. But I found that... Um, the first, especially the first half of the album, like Knock It Off and uh, Rotation 112th, feel a little bit more like granular and very, very specific in a way that I always relate to in rap music. Like I always react very much to like people who are really, really, really specific with their details. Yeah. I, I mean, like also kind of like on ES Tales, like towards the end of it, there's that one clip where... And I'm only thinking about it in terms of the music video because the music video is also good. It's like really pixelated. It's cool. You should watch it. But, you know, like he, like getting the phone call from Poppy, it's just like all you do is execute. It's just like very specific things about stuff that only he could know from like being in Watts and doing the stuff that he's done and living mm-hmm. the life that he's lived. But, um, Okay, so out of all the songs on this record, what's the one that's going to stay in your rotation for the foreseeable future? Yes, Tales. Yes, Tales easily. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not only because the production just feels like, I don't know, like very, very vintage Dr. Dre to me in, in some ways, which I'm sure is like I'll be corrected about like what it actually draws from, but mm-hmm. it has that kind of dark carnival feel. Right. His flow is just like rip shit on this. Though. Yeah. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah. All that back and forth gets me hot sometimes. Wanna see somebody get knocked out, just box one time. Shit. Catch a fade, catch a fade. It ain't nothing. Get your head up at the gym, bring your knuckles. Look, I'm deep inside the projects where it's bracking at. You know the zip where we take a quarter piece, flip a telecorner lit, a one yola. That fresh over- also, just the like the Mario coin sound clips in it. Yes. Like the, I just love those too. It's just like a really, it's what you leave in, you know? But I think my favorite record on the album would have to be Troopers. His work on the phone. 
Tell my mama that I might not make it home. Me and my troopers hopping in this bitch, popping in this bitch. Me and my troopers hopping in this bitch, popping in this bitch. Me and my troopers. I said it's work on the phone. Somebody tell my mama I might not make it home. Me and my troopers hopping in this bitch, popping in this bitch. Me and my troopers hopping in this bitch. It's just such a fun song. Yeah, it's, and it sounds it sounds perfect everywhere. Can I ask you something that's a little bit more about like the sort of the umbrella topic of this conversation in the first place? Sure. What does a dude like J-Rock have to do to break through uh, in the summer of wrestling? <laughs> in the summer of pro wrestling? Uh, I say that, I mean, we're talking basically about how you need to create like an extra musical narrative around your release, preferably one that involves tension with another rapper or planet Earth or whatever Kanye is fighting to develop, to like basically like create buzz for lack of a better better cliche uh and and when somebody like j-rock just kind of goes out there and like punches the clock but does like an incredibly good shift at it how, how does somebody like that like rise above the the noise well i mean well the answer to that is kind of like changing what you consider to be winning if you wanted to be like a big brand name that grabs headline, headlines and all this other stuff then you would have to be concerned with those sorts of things, which J-Rock isn't, which I think is what we both appreciate about him. Yeah. I mean, like, what do you think he would have to do? I almost wish there was something for for music that was a little bit more like movies, where, like, the blockbusters come out in summer and then the award bait comes out in the fall and winter. <laughs> and I almost wish that, like, there would be a way to say, okay, like, some of these blockbuster records, some of which are pitted against one another, they're all going to come out between uh, Memorial Day and Labor Day. But after Labor Day, that's when we put out the like finely crafted, okay. finely tuned statements of purpose and artistic <laughs> intent. Yeah. And that's not to say that Scorpion or Yay or Daytona or any of these other records that have come out over the last few months aren't, you know, aren't actually like artistic statements. But I almost wish like. TDE just goes about their business in such a workmanlike fashion, and it's just like we just do our thing and like at let like fuck all the noise. But I kind of wish that this had like a later release in the year, so that maybe it would have caught on a little bit. Do you think they they put it out now to catch a little bit of like the Black Panther, like the residual him appearing on the Black Panther soundtrack buzz? What do you think was the purpose? Yeah, I mean, basically, in one of the 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 earliest interviews he gave about the album, uh, talking of course about the bike accident and all this other stuff. There was kind of reports in the intervening time of him kind of going through a dark night of the soul, like becoming uninspired, so on and so forth. I think that once it was finally finished, that they were just kind of like, all right, we're going to put it out. So, yeah, I think they were probably trying to ride the buzz of uh, his King Dead's, his King's Dead appearance. But, I mean, like, it, I don't know exactly if that's 1,000% true because everybody on the internet was talking about Future's sure. verse, not, not his verse. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, with J-Rock's album or Courtney Barnett's album or the Neil Young live album, I mean, like, these are all well-written, well-produced, well-everything, but it just takes a little time to realize that, and there hasn't been time recently, it feels like. Yeah, the irony of where we find ourselves in the sort of media-industrial complex moment, along with social media, along with having everything at our fingertips whenever we want it, is that we're really only talking about five things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, and, and I don't know whether or not, I don't think that's healthy for sure. I, we, Andy and I talk about this all the time on TV. There's yeah. more TV than there ever has been before, yet we're talking about five or six five, shows. Four yeah. or five, six shows, yeah. yeah. And that's that's like a more of an indictment of me and Andy's breadth of, of taste maybe than anything else. And I, I think for the music stuff, 
it's sad that there's like it, people would rather atomize Scorpion for, for however many weeks <laughs> afterwards than dedicate any of the column column inches to 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 use a dead dead media term dead media uh, term. <laughs> to J Rock or some cool reissue or an investigation of the Courtney Barnett record. But I get it. You know what I mean? Like because that's just the way things are now. People would rather be obsessive about less than discover more. Wow, that was profound. <laughs> Thank you so much to for coming on the show and imparting your sagacious wisdom and also talking about Neil Young with me. I appreciate it. All right, that's it. That's all. Thank you so much for listening. We will not have a show next week, unfortunately, but we will be back the 1st of August. Special thanks to Chris Ryan and Justin Charity for joining me. Shout out my producers, Agia Chagre and Zach Mack. And don't forget to check out our playlist that we will be updating every week with the songs that we're listening to. They're not next week because obviously we don't have a show. A link to that is in the description. Also, please rate and subscribe if you like the show. Only if you like the show. We really appreciate it. Peace. See you in two weeks. Stay black. All that stuff. Peace.